So everybody's heard about this phenomena, opioid-induced hyperalgesia, right? Terrible thing, awful thing. Opioids are such bad drugs, and they, they need to be weeded out of our system entirely, and opioid-induced hyperalgesia is one of the good reasons that we should do that, right? How many people in this room think that there is such a thing as opioid-induced hyperalgesia? Great. So I'm going to have some fun today. <laughs> so let's do it. <clears throat> okay, I have nothing to disclose. I, uh, the, the work that I'm going to mention to you, it's, it's a pilot study that we had done, uh, was, uh, was funded by uh, private sources, uh, the Larry, uh, Nancy and Larry Glick Pain Research Fund. Okay, uh, But aside from that, I have uh, no other access to grind today. Um, so we want to uh, define or describe mechanisms of OIH if it exists, describe the methods of quantifying OIH, and, and uh, differentiate some alternate explanations. Uh, uh, and we'll jump right in here. Yeah, there's, th this, is, this is not the slide set I submitted, so I'll be, I'll be reading it with you here. <clears throat> <clears throat> okay, I, 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 can't, I can't deal with this. this. This is definitely not a slide that I had submitted, but, but let, me, uh, let me tell you what I was trying to do here. <clears throat> the FDA... Uh, came out, you know, they're, they're done with REMS, you know, the REMS has come and gone and, you know, didn't really achieve anything. Uh, so their next thing that they wanted to come after opioids with was a whole series of things that they were requiring pharma to do. Uh, and they wanted one-year studies to assess safety uh, and, and all kind of issues, but, but one of the issues the very serious issue of opioid-induced hyperalgesia. We must study this. We must assess this. We must determine things that we can do about this. Okay? Uh, but they gave us no definition of opioid-induced hyperalgesia or even hyperalgesia. They gave us no direction. They just simply said, you know, pharma, go out and do one-year studies uh, of this uh, and, and then tell us what you're going to do about it. Uh, those studies are theoretically ongoing. There was a task force that was created, uh, but that was created more than a year ago, and they only needed a one-year study. So I don't really know the status of that. I haven't, haven't seen Nat Cast at any meetings, so I don't really know where we are. But Dr. Katz was uh, running, the, running the task force. Um, so I want to ask the question, do opioids induce hyperalgesia and or allodynia. And I'll keep throwing that word allodynia out because hyperalgesia and allodynia probably work by very similar, if not identical, mechanisms. Uh, and I don't know why people focus on um, uh, hyperalgesia and never mention allodynia, but, but the two are essentially the same. I mean, there's obviously a difference uh, in the definition. Uh, allodynia is innocuous stimuli that is now painful. Uh, hyperalgesia is painful stimuli that is now uh, exaggerated uh, or, or, or it seems to be enhanced beyond uh, uh, what you would normally expect with a, with a normally slightly painful stimuli. This is like you take a pen pick, prick and, and, and hit somebody with a pen and they say, ow, 
uh, but a person that has hyperalgesia, you, you hit them with the pin and it's like, ah, you know, and there's after sensation and all those sort of things. So, uh, so that's, uh, uh, that's what I mean when I say hyperalgesia. Now, it's very clear that the rat work, the original rat work, uh, primarily by Urin Mao, uh, was, was showed clear hyperalgesia in rats. It's when people started trying to do work in humans that things became a little fuzzy. Now, um, if they put my slides in here, oh, this is an animal studies of uh, OAH-like phenomena. You know, it, it's pretty pretty crystal that that rats do show a hyperalgesic type of phenomena with prolonged opioid consumption. Um, but when you go to humans, the li uh, literature is much less limited. The literature is very conflicted, and most of the literature is based on acute studies, hyperacute studies. I mean, using short-term potent opioids and testing like minutes after the, the, the it had been infused. So, so we're not really talking about the phenomena that FDA was talking about. Or, or, the, or the phenomena that's relevant to us as clinicians, which is chronic opioid use, okay? So, so we don't really know exactly what's going on with humans. Um, uh, <clears throat> so uh, hyperalgesia, is, is it opioid-induced? We, we have several terms here. I've talked about hyperalgesia. I've talked about opioid-induced allodynia, uh, if such a thing exists. Uh, there's another important uh, related phenomena, which is micro-withdrawal or withdrawal hyperalgesia. Because your patients that are on chronic opioid therapy, if you take them off of opioids, they're going to have a hyperalgesia-type phenomena. They're going to be very sensitized uh, to pain stimulus uh, and to non-pain stimulus. Uh, so it's important to remember that you know, is it, it's not just the ramping up of the opioids and, and the chronic opioid therapy, but the micro-withdrawal, in other words, from the opioid dose is, is, is wearing off. Uh, there's also a phenomenon that's fairly well described in the animal literature about opioid neurotoxicity. The opioids actually cause uh, a destruction and, 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 in some cases, death and diminution of function uh, in neurons. Okay, and this can cause the neurons to be very sensitive, and we could call that a, a, a hyperalgesia. Um, there's also a phenomena, brand new phenomena, we've only known it since the 1940s, which we call central sensitization. And people that have pain, uh, either acute pain or, or chronic pain, it drives the central nervous system to become more and more sensitive. And we've known about this, but, but I, I'm, I'm throwing that out there because this central sensitization, peripheral sensitization, or augmentation is clearly a related phenomena, if not the phenomena that we're talking about. But this happens to all pain patients, whether they're on opioids or not, whether they're on drugs or not. Uh, and then there's a, a, a something I'll talk about very briefly at the end. Is Dr. Tennant in the um, in the audience? Uh, he's he's the guru of opioid-induced endocrinopathy. He doesn't call it that, but I'll call it that. But we do know that patients that have chronic pain have changes in a whole variety, a whole slew uh, of endocrine products. 
And we also know that when people have a deficit, uh, for instance, in pregnenolone, that they are very sensitive to certain types of stimuli. In other words, the pain probably causes the endocrine products to fall, and as the endocrine products fall, this may cause a phenomenon of hyperalgesia. Uh, and then there's just good old-fashioned tolerance uh, to opioids. In other words, you, you take an opioid, it sort of suppresses the uh, endogenous opioid system so that now people are, are more sensitive to pain. So what is the mechanism of hyperalgesia? Uh, I've already uh, mentioned it, but we have peripheral sensitization, uh, which is, uh, you know, obviously changes uh, in the um, uh, neurotransmitters at the skin and at the first receptor, the, the C-fiber receptors uh, uh, or the larger fiber receptors in the case of uh, uh, allodynia. We have changes in the central nervous system, uh, which we call central sensitization or augmentation. Those two terms are, are pretty synonymous in the literature. There is a disinhibition phenomena uh, where, where the, 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 the nerves themselves become disinhibited and the transmission pathways become disinhibited. Uh, and then there's my old favorite thing that everybody forgets about is the central nervous system actually can influence these sensitization phenomena with, via the sympathetic nervous system. This is like our good old friend uh, complex regional pain syndrome, of course. So peripheral sensitization, you know, we, it, it, whole careers are being made by molecular biologists studying this. We are learning a lot about what goes on here at the uh, primary afferent neuron. And, and just all these elaborate um, uh, changes uh, in neurotransmitters uh, and electrochemical changes, uh, all of these things going on, which could cause this primary afferent neuron to become sensitized. We also know that when you get to the neuron, that chronic pain causes changes in the sensitization of the neuron or the neuron's ability to fire. Uh, so this is peripheral sensitization, both at the skin level and at non-nervous system uh, level, but at nervous system level as well. You move into the central nervous system, you get to the dorsal horn, uh, and we see, uh, you know, again, a very rich uh, area for, or for uh, somebody looking for a research career, especially a molecular biologist. But we're beginning to characterize, again, these elaborate neurochemical systems that can both amplify and de-amplify the ability to transmit uh, uh, across these synapses here from the first nerve to the second nerve, or as we call it, synaptic uh, efficiency. So, so there, all, of this, uh, all of these chemical things here can influence this so that you can enhance synaptic efficiency, uh, which we call sensitization, or you can turn down synaptic efficiency. All right? It's always a yin and a yang in the nervous system, right? Um, and it's, it's becoming even more complicated to try to understand this phenomenon at the, uh, uh, at the first nerve to second nerve, uh, second order neuron, uh, in this system because we now know that the microglia and the astrocytes have a profound influence on whether or not the information is transmitted uh, to the central nervous system. Uh, in other words, they can turn it up, uh, uh, which would be sensitization, or they can turn it down, uh, demodulation. Uh, and this, of course, is called the tetrapartite synapse. 
uh, but but just just lots and lots of works on the on these guys here, the glia. You know, we used to think this these were just a support kind of skeleton uh, for the nervous system to to hang on, uh, and now we know that these guys are 80% of the central nervous system and profoundly influential on on what gets transmitted where uh, and how potently. Um, you know, we've we've done a lot of work uh, with the fMRI, the early fMRI. My my psychology colleagues like to call this the the blobs. You know, the blobology. We know a lot about blobology. What blobs are turned on and what blobs are turned off with chronic pain and acute pain and where they are. Uh, but very importantly now, oops, I skipped a slide. I used to. I have this. Maybe maybe. Yeah, there it is. Um, but, but now we talk about the, the connectivity between the blobs, how, how they talk to each other and how, uh, how, how clearly and, and, um, and potently they speak amongst the blobs. In other words, you can always, again, have the turn it up where the connectivity is increased, or you can turn it down where the connectivity is decreased or changed. Uh, so, you know, this is, this is a, a very, very active area of pain research. Uh, the more we learn the more we know that we need to study this. Uh, but, but clearly these features, this connectivity is involved in um, uh, uh, central sensitization. And here's the red herring, uh, you know, the original slide I submitted, genetics comes forth as a big bright red. The red herring of everything that we do in pain management research is the fact that we're all different. And there's, uh, there's an inkling in the literature that some people uh, very easily develop hyperalgesia for any cause, and some people just never develop it. There's no way. They're just never going to get a hyperalgesic phenomena no matter what happens. Uh, and it's probably determined by genetics. So how do we define and measure hyperalgesia? And, the, you know, this is, this is something the FDA didn't help us with. They said, well, you've got to study it. And somebody asked the question, how do you want us to study it? And they said, we don't know. We don't even really know what it is. Okay. That's what they told me directly, right? Not. <clears throat> uh, I apologize, guys. They've moved my slides all out of order. So I'm just going to have to work back and forth here. I'll try, to, I'll try to keep the train going. But here's the glossary of the International Association for the Study of Pain's Terms. Uh, and I've already told you that allodynia is pain due to a stimulus that does not normally provoke pain. Hyperalgesia increased pain from a stimulus that normally, normally provokes pain. Uh, but it's important to know that the term that preceded hyperalgesia, and you'll still see it in the literature, is hyperpathia, which has almost the same definition. Uh, and, and terms like hyperesthesia, you just never see those used anymore. That's, that's an increased sensitivity to stimulation. And then hypoalgesia, which just means numbness, okay? Uh, the, um, can anybody see the red? Can we, turn, can we turn down the lights a little bit? Is that possible? Well, that's good. <laughs> That's good. They don't have to look at me and they can look at the screen, right? Can you see it? Oh, this is cool. See, on my slides, this was yellow and it was on a blue background. Um, anyhow, um, 
quantitative sensory testing and um, you know what that means and how to use it and the protocols uh, that we agree on have been um, have been worked out very carefully by the German Pain Network, uh, led led by uh, uh, a lot of these guys. Actually, Frank Berkline is the one that uh, I always ask if I have a question about this. But but these guys uh, have really worked out all different types of quantitative sensory testing. People when they hear quantitative sensory testing, they often uh, think that that just means thermal uh, QST. Uh, but there's uh, anything that you, it, really anything that you might do that you can quantitate to test the sensory system is a quantitative sensory testing. And, and the Germans have gone through pretty much all the relevant things to pain. Uh, so if you, if you want a definitive uh, uh, look, a definitive uh, uh, glossary of, of, of how to use these devices, uh, I, I refer you to Rolke's, um, uh, Rolke's work. Okay, um, now I told you that the animal, animal work was definitive uh, due to the work of Yuri and Mao and many, many others. But one of Yuri and Mao's, uh, uh, when she started working with him, she was a young colleague. Uh, Lucy Chen is, uh, is about my age, and, uh, and I've talked to her many times about this. But, but she probably has done the best work, the best good research on opioid-induced hyperalgesia. And she works, of course, with humans. Um, so she's uh, Mao's protege, but uh, is now taking off and doing a lot of work in humans. I don't know that she's going to go much beyond this, but she conducted a study where she had three groups, uh, patients with neither pain nor opioid therapy, group one, with chronic pain but without opioid therapy, group two, and with both chronic pain and, uh, and opioid therapy, group three. And what she showed when she studied these people using thermal QST and thermal wind-up, which I'll explain in a minute, she showed that group three su uh, subjects, uh, an N of 58, displayed a um, uh, decreased heat pain threshold and an exacerbated temporal summation of second pain to thermal stimulation. She didn't say that that was just to heat pain, but, but in the paper you can see that it, actually it was just heat pain. Which is kind of interesting because a lot of people think that, that cold perception and cold pain are actually more relevant to the assessment of hyperalgesia, but Lucy Chen did not show that. Uh, this is great work. Uh, there were some things, that, uh, some testing that she did not look at, uh, and some of, the, uh, some of the conclusions that she arrived at uh, I disagree with, or, or at least my data would, would disagree with. Uh, but I have to tell you that this is definitive, and she has a much larger N than I do, all right? So what are the tests for hyperalgesia? I've already mentioned ther thermal QST. Um, does everybody know what thermal QST is? What, what is this? It's a, it's a device that has a little, a little pad on it. It's called a Peltier, a Peltier device, and what it, what it does is it, it warms up at a, at a specific rate or it cools down at a specific rate. And the patients have a little, a little button and they hit it when they perceive the change either to cool, uh, cool or warm, in other words, perception, and then when it becomes painful, they hit it again. So you have cold and heat perception and cold and heat pain, okay? Uh, so 
all of the, uh, these things, of course, warm perception and cold perception fall into the allodynamic area, and then uh, heat pain perception and cold pain perception uh, fall into the uh, hyperalgesic area. Okay? There's also a phenomenon that has been uh, mentioned not only in the German literature, but, but throughout the literature about hyperalgesia, uh, which is thermal windup. Uh, and this is where you take the same device, but it hits you with a, with a hot stimulus. It actually goes up to uh, uh, 49 degrees, which is right about the time where you're going, yikes, and trying to get out of the lab, okay? So it hits you with a 49 degree stimulus, and it drops right off. So you can, so you can sort of tap people with this, with this temperature thing. And what you see, you ask the question, give me uh, a 0 to 10 number as to how painful it is. And you, you hit them with the pain and they go 2. You hit them with the next one. And if they have hyperalgesia, they'll say 4. And you hit them with the next one, they'll go 8. You know, it's, so it's a, it's a, it's a wind-up of the thermal sensation. And, and equally so for the, um, uh, for the cold. Now, interestingly, again, the cold seems to be more relevant to the study of hyperalgesia uh, than hot, but we'll talk a little bit about that later. Uh, pinprick sensation. This is just the easiest thing you can do at the bedside, where you take a, uh, take a, uh, a clean safety pin and you tap your patient, and they say, well, you know, and you hit them uh, at one per second, um, uh, and they'll say, and ask them, oh, you know, what's the pain as you go along? Now, uh, usually a person that doesn't have hyperalgesia will say, eh, one, two, one, one, two, one. They'll go along like that as you're tapping them. But somebody with hyperalgesia, they'll go, one, three, six, ten. Stop it, Dr. Harden. Quit poking me with that damn pen. You know, and that's uh, the pinprick, uh, pinprick, uh, wind up, uh, pinprick wind up. Now, we use actually not... Um, a uh, safety pen. Uh, we use a weighted pen, so it's a reproducible um, uh, stimulus every time you do it. And I think I have a picture of that later. There's also mechanical windup, and this uh, the 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 way we do um, the way we do this is uh, uh, the pen prick, where it's it's winding up the, uh, as I said over one per second, and then we have algometry, which is uh, which is pressure. Uh, normally, an uh, innocuous stimuli that uh, you ask if it now becomes uh, uh, painful, and you can determine when it becomes painful in terms of the, uh, the, the uh, uh, amount of pressure that you're putting at the site. Uh, that's BBC News telling me something horrible has happened, so I'm going to put that up here too. Um, <clears throat> So uh, let me tell you about the methods that we used. Now remember, Lucy Chen's work definitive, our work follows on, but, but there's, uh, this is why it's, it's conflicted. There's a, there's a disconnect between our work and her work uh, and the work that has been done in humans so far. So we took chronic low back pain patients uh, of any type. Um, this analysis will only include the N of 30, the first 30 patients we have. There's been more patients since. It didn't change the data, uh, and frankly, we ran out of money before we could get into definitive numbers of 60 per cell. Uh, but so we have 30 patients. There's 20 in analysis because what we did is we took 10 patients with, that were at the top half of the opioid dose, in other words, what we're calling the high-dose opioid patients, uh, and, to, and compared that to 10 patients that were not taking opioids. 
Um, uh, we developed a morphine milli equivalency. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Uh, and then we did a, a variety of quantitative sensory testing, um, uh, as I had indicated in the prior, uh, prior slide. Okay, um, this is a schedule of study procedures, which was not in the slide set that I submitted to Pain Week. Uh, but this is, this, is, uh, this is how we did and what we did is really only two visits where they came and they did baseline testing. And then we wanted to look at, look at them again in six, in six months uh, so we could see if something had changed. Because we thought if, if we had a big enough end, which we did not, that if patients started uh, taking higher doses of opioids, something might change. Or if they stopped opioids, something might change. But, uh, uh, but that analysis was not done, which is why that slide was not in my slide set. Um, we had to look at, you know, to, to get these uh, uh, ratings of, you know, who was high dose and who was low dose, we had to have morphine milliequivalency. Uh, and uh, yeah, this is a mess. You know, you hear a lot of people talk about this, especially the FDA and the CDC. You know, it's like you can't, uh, for instance, the CDC is now telling us you can't use more than 90 morphine milliequivalents a day in your patients. Ask them what scale they used. Because when you look at milliequivalency scales, they are all over the place. You will not believe how much difference there are between scale to scale. Again, they give us no directive. And so if, you, if, you wanna, if your poor patients are taking uh, higher morphine milliequivalency on one scale, just get another scale and they'll drop below that 90. Okay? Sorry, I didn't say that. <laughs> I just thought that. But, uh, but what we did is we averaged the top five scales, the most used scales, uh, and this is what we came up with. I'll be happy to share this with anybody if they want to uh, shoot me an email. I'll, I'll shoot it right back. We did, the, uh, <clears throat> we did the thermal QST. This is a QST report. Um, uh, what's happening here is it's cooling down, and, the, and this is where they hit it. Uh, on the, uh, in this case, it was uh, uh, CRPS, and it was the affected side versus the unaffected side. Uh, but here's the data. Um, so this is cold sensation. Remember, this is perception when they feel when it feels cold, and cold pain, uh, which when they ran it through the pain weakometer moved it over there. But but just think this is the this is the cold pain side. Um, and here you have high-dose opioids, the, the, the gray bar on this slide, and the pink bar was no opioids. Now, let me tell you about these statistics here. Everybody knows about p-values, and, and when you see a big p-value like that, you say that's not significant. In other words, there's no difference between those patients with low back pain that were taking opioids than those with low back pain that were not taking opioids uh, in this one test, all right? There's a little difference between the bars, but when you look at the p-values, you can say no. But the more compelling thing with a small end study like this is the F statistic. And, and the way this guy works, uh, it, hopefully everybody knows exactly how the F statistic works, right? Right, everybody? Well, the, the idea with this is the closer it gets to one, you can reject the null hypothesis. The null hypothesis is there's no difference between the two. So when you start getting low numbers like 0.39, it indicates there's no difference between the two. So we have two statistical methodologies here, 
uh, suggesting that there is no difference between the twos, not only in cold perception, but in cold pain between high-dose opioids and no opioids. No indication that there is a difference in the development of hyperalgesia, but also these data tell us that everybody's got hyperalgesia. So in other words, both on opioids and off opioids, chronic low back pain patients have hyperalgesia, but there's no difference. Okay, this is key, and we'll talk a little bit about this as we go along. All right, so now let's turn to the hot and the warm. So in the warm sensation, warm perception, again, a low F value and a high P value. Uh, here, this, this F value indicates that there clearly is no difference. Even, even with a small N, you have to say there's really no difference uh, in terms of the hot pain perception. Um, and again, the P value is very high. You notice that the lower the, P uh, the F value, the higher the P value. So everybody's got hyperalgesia, but there's no difference between those taking opioids and not taking opioids. Um, <clears throat> this, this is just something to, it was a different study. This is a knee osteoarthritis study. And I just put this up here. Uh, to demonstrate that, that these, these things really are sensitive to people that aren't taking opioids and don't have pain. It's really sensitive for showing uh, distinctions. And we are seeing, of course, uh, uh, significant p-values, which you can barely see down there, uh, and, and particularly in the cold range, the, 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 cold, uh, the cold detection and cold pain patients. This is just to convince you that it's a sensitive test. It is showing what we want it to show. It shows it in the expected direction in, in the regular old control versus uh, uh, patients who have pain. The thermal windup, this is, this is a little bit more explanation about how this works. Um, the patients will give you an NRS report uh, on the first, the third, and the fifth hit in this train where you, you tap them with cold, uh, you tap them with hot, uh, or you hit them with the pinprick. But you, what you're doing these trains of uh, uh, trains of stimulus, and they're, uh, the the ones that have hyperalgesia are going to say the numbers increase, and the ones that don't have hyperalgesia, allodynia, it's not going to change. Okay. And here we have again very low F values. No way that there's differences between these two groups: uh, high dose opioids and low dose opioids. Um, Again, your p-values, as the f-value goes down, your p-value goes up. You know, this, there's, there's no question that, at least in this sample, uh, this, there's, there's a difference between these two. F-value 0.4, p-value 0.85 for the third tap, uh, uh, and the same thing you see for the, for the fifth tap. So everybody's getting hyperalgesic response. There's no difference between those taking opioids and not taking opioids. Um, again, to convince you that we're, we're very serious about trying to understand how to do this QST testing, what it means is we, we looked at a whole different ways to do this wind-up, particularly um, uh, thermal wind-up and thermal taps. Uh, and just to show you that we selected the one uh, where rather than letting people determine their own threshold to be tapped at, we just put everybody to 50, uh, 49 degrees, okay? 49 degrees 
seem to, seem to be ideal for all of our patients. Okay, pinprick testing. Now, this, this is a, an example of, of that uh, device, the weighted pen. There's, there's a little uh, weight in this cylinder so that when you tap the patient, everybody gets a, a, the same stimulus with every single stimuli, okay? Uh, and another way to do that is if you want to get the old, old uh, von Freiherrs out, you use the 5.46 uh, and you push it. And then, of course, the, the von Freiherr, you push until a certain energy is reached and then it bends, so it stops stimulating. So you can do it if you happen to have a, a von Frey set sitting around this $280 set here. Uh, take the uh, 5.46 and you can, you can get around this equally expensive device that I can only get from Germany at this point. All right, now let me talk about one that actually did show a significant difference. Uh, this is the pinprick mechanical windup. Remember, we're hitting these people uh, one through ten taps. First tap, they look pretty much the same. But notice that the F value is over 1.17. So this is starting to indicate that there may be a difference between the two. Uh, the, uh, the, the fifth tap, which is this one here, if my things weren't slid over, uh, 0.2 and 0.64, okay. So we're back into the non-significant difference in terms of F value, and of course the P value is pretty big. And look at this, we have an F value of 2.25. So this is, a, this is clearly reject the null hypothesis. This indicates that there is a difference between the two, so what does this mean? That there's opioid-induced hyperalgesia? Got to look a little bit more closely. What you see is that the high-dose opioid has less pain, significantly less pain than those on opioids. So in this case, in this test, it looks like the opioids protected against the development of hyperalgesia. All right, pressure algometry. This is... This is um, uh, a pressure a pressure device, it's uh, one centimeter squared and it tells you how many kilograms you have to push. So again, it's reproducible. Um, wow, I don't think anybody's going to say there's really much difference here. We have an F value of 0.00. My, my statistician told me that, that he'd never seen that, ever. But this indicates again, and a p-value of 0.99 in the opposite direction, there's clearly no difference here. Between, uh, uh, between these uh, pressure pain thresholds, between high dose and low dose. And we're, we're now looking at areas far beyond the back. I mean, it's, just, it's not just areas in the affected. This, we're looking at true hyperalgesia or whole body, uh, whole body uh, sensitization. No difference. So everybody, everybody is showing hyperalgesia, but there is no difference between opioids and non-opioids, all right? You guys getting bored with this story? This, this is, again, just to show you that the algometer, it is a sensitive way to test for hyperalgesia. And here's OA patients who have uh, demonstrated, uh, 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 in this case, it's actually allodynium because it's an innocuous stimuli. Uh, but, but you, uh, you know, the clearly the controls, um, um, uh, the OA patients have hyperalgesia versus the controls. This is just to show you it's a sensitive test, and, and it's not just an insensitive test that's not showing a difference, all right? 
there's one test that is mentioned in the literature and we started doing this late in the trial and I can't report the results because we just simply do not have enough patients to talk about. As low an end study as it was, we, don't, we didn't have enough patients in this trial to, to talk about. Uh, in fact, there was only four patients. But it's the cold presser test. Uh, and the way this works is a patient plunges their hand in, in, cold, in ice cold water and they leave it in as long as they can tolerate it and you just take a stopwatch and see how long it takes them to snatch it out. Uh, a patient with, uh, with hyperalgesia, and this is alleged in the literature to be one of the most sensitive tests of hyperalgesia, uh, is going to, you know, they get their hand in and they snatch it right back out. They just can't tolerate it at all. You should try this test on yourself. It's really unpleasant to put your, put your hand in ice cold water uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a good bedside test if you want to try to demonstrate this uh, in the clinic. Um, there's another test that we did not run, we did not report on. This is after sensation. It's like if you're, you're poking pins in these people and they say, if, if they have hyperalgesia, and they say, ouch, you know, it, it's, a, uh, you know, it's a, a 9 out of 10 NRS, you ask them, uh, uh, over time what the pain is and, and, and normally a person resets very quickly to zero pain but some people will have after sensation where they'll have pain that will go on for seconds or even minutes uh, after the stimulus but, but we did not do that and the reason I'm talking about these other uh, uh, measures of, of uh, hyperalgesia is that I'm hoping that somewhere out in the audience there's some young person that's interested in doing research in pain uh, that would like to pick this work, work up and go forward, I would say that after sensation and cold presser tests should be very uh, important uh, uh, in terms of uh, uh, testing in the future. Okay, opioid-induced endocrinopathy. Um, uh, you know, I won't bore everybody with all these metabolic schemes here, but, uh, but you know, the, we, we have these, uh, the, these chemicals that are processed in the body and they go off to endocrine products. Uh, the ones that have been implicated in pain, there's a bunch of them. There's cortisol, uh, ACTH, TSH, pregnenolone, which is the sort of the, uh, the grandmother of, of all uh, uh, sex hormones uh, and the, or the grandfather because they do not only female but uh, male sex hormones. DHEA, uh, which is primarily a, a male hormone, but women, women do have a level of DHEA, FSH, LH, of course, are women, estrogen, progesterone, women, and testosterone are, are men. But, you know, people don't know this, they don't think this, but men have FSH and LH, women have testosterone. It's not supposed to be zero. But what we're seeing in chronic pain patients is it is often zero. It's completely flat. And we do know, again, that when these endocrine products are, 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 are suppressed, uh, it may cause a hyperalgesia, uh, allodynic type of, uh, type of uh, phenomenon. And as far as Tennant, Tennant would say, now there's no great evidence for this. The, the, trial, the, the definitive trials have not been run, but Forrest will tell you that empirically, when he replaces or supplements these, uh, these endocrine products that are depleted in chronic pain, the pain gets better. Uh, and then, you know, the one thing I have to put up here, the sympathetic nervous system, the, it, altering the, the peripheral 
peripheral response to pain and, and thereby the central response to pain or, or the development of hyperalgesia or not. Um, well, this is just a natural mechanism of wind up. We, we, you know, if, if you listen to your patients and your OA patients tell you it hurts worse when I go up a flight of stairs, we use that as sort of a natural mechanism of wind up. And again, I just throw that out there for future research. Uh, you know, in the relationships between the psycho, psychometrics and the QST uh, testing uh, is something that's uh, fascinating, but not for today. Um, that was not in my slide set. This is in my slide set. That's a, that's a poor picture of uh, Papaver somniferum or opioid. So I would suggest to you that before we rush to judgment and conclude that urine mouths work with rats apply directly to human beings, we need to take a deep breath and we need to do the studies. We need to define our terms. We need to define our protocols and methodologies that we're going to use to assess these phenomena. And then we need to do the research. And then we need to conclude yes or no. Are the opioids causing this, these allodynic or hyperalgesic phenomena? Or is it just chronic pain and central sensitization? We've known this since the 40s. People that hurt become sensitized. Why blame it on opioids without data? And I'll leave you with that. All right, I'll try to try to entertain questions here. You you had your hand up first, sir. Uh, have you found uh, hypo and hyper? Meaning, meaning that they, they, they're numb in an area, but, it, but they also have uh, uh, allodynic or hyperalgesic. I have seen that. I have seen that. And it seems, it seems like it doesn't make any sense, but then but what you're talking about is different testing methodologies, right? Because they'll be numb to one and hyperalgesic to another testing methodology. I have seen that. Yes, sir, you were next. Yes. What does that say about the effectiveness of opioids? The effectiveness it's of opioids. That there is no difference. Yes. I mean, it, it's they're supposed to decrease pain. They're supposed to decrease pain, but not these these uh, allodynic or hyperalgesic phenomena. These these are painful phenomena. But what we're talking See, about, uh, yeah, that's what that's we're we're well, remember the, these people were taking opioids for chronic low back pain. And theoretically, the opioid worked for the chronic low back pain, at least in the short term, okay? We were not, they were not taking the opioid for the hyperalgesic phenomena, okay? Yeah. So this, this is talking about a, shall we say, an epiphenomena to taking a drug or to having chronic pain, all right? Does that, does that make sense? Did I answer your question? Even close? Um, Wait, I, go ahead. Yes. 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 Yeah, and and you know it's like opioids should relieve this hyperalgesia, right? And and but then at least FDA is saying they cause the hyperalgesia. 
So I didn't answer that question. I won't answer that question because my data is not definitive, but isn't it interesting that this does not support the contention of FDA and everybody else that's just yakking glibly about opioid-induced hyperalgesia, you know, this week as the pendulum has swung over here and, you know, opioids are the worst thing that's ever happened to the human race, right? This week. Yes, sir. Yes. My understanding is hyperalgesia is if you compare someone who's never had opiates to people who have been routinely taking opiates, mm -hmm. the very fact that they took the opiates, if you stop the opiates, they will be more sensitive to pain with the same condition mm -hmm. um, if the, the opiates are stopped. Well, and that's a hyperalgesia is a long term effect. Right. The, what you're talking about is actually micro withdrawal. You're taking opioids and you're getting reasonable pain relief, at least in the short term, and you stop the opioids and the pain shoots up. That's actually withdrawal pain. That's not hyperalgesia. It's a, probably a related phenomenon. It's very likely that similar mechanisms are working in the periphery and in the central nervous system. Okay? But, but those are, are different things. And, 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 and this sort of underlines, underscores one of the problems I see with this whole, this whole idea is that there's, there's not really a good definition of terms. What is it? You know, I've tried to define it in terms of psychophysical testing. That's because, you know, that's what I do. <laughs> I, I'm a physiologist, you know, so I have to define it in some terms. I like to define it in, ter things, in terms of things that I can quantitate. But, you know, what, what's, what's, the, what's the disease that has probably the most dramatic uh, hyperalgesia, whole body hyperalgesia? Fibromyalgia. Of course it is. They're just sensitized all over. And, and you can quantitate this with the, with the uh, you know, you go to the 11 of 18 points and you push on them with the, with the algometer. And, and you know, you, we, we've done this research. You, you know, go back 20 years ago and you can... Pardon? Well, we shouldn't be giving opioids to fibromyalgia anyhow, right? That's verboten. Verboten. Well, the, 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 the ACR, the people that tell us how we should be treating the meta-analyses of people with fibromyalgia, it would suggest that it's really not a good idea to use high-dose opioids in fibromyalgia patients. What? Okay, we're, we're, I'm not going to quibble this. I talked about fibromyalgia yesterday. Um, uh, I never use opioids in fibromyalgia patients in my entire clinical career because you have a disease that is characterized by hyperalgesia and you have a class of drugs that is at least alleged, perhaps, to increase that. Now, if you can prove that opioids don't do that, then maybe we can develop a rationale for giving this to, to fibromyalgia patients. Yes, yes, sir. Your study on the back pain with high dose opioids, how long were the opioid patients on high dose opioids? 
that's a good question, and, and they had been on, on the opioids for at least three months to get into the trial. But some of them had been on for, you know, two, three, four years. Okay? Um, uh, it, well, it, it doesn't look really high, but if morphine milliequivalents, uh, the high-dose group was uh, above 55 morphine milliequivalents. So it's not, it, that's not really high, but it was the top half of the study, that, uh, of the sample that we studied, okay? And some of them were way higher than that, all right? Yes, sir. No, it was not. It was, it was uh, uh, the QST testing was done at a completely remote site to back. It was usually done, uh, you know, it, it, depending on the test, it was done on volar forearm. Uh, uh, it was done uh, on, on the back of the gastrocnemicus. But we, we used sites that were deliberately remote from the pain and to avoid radiculopathy, you know, we, we, we didn't like to use uh, uh, the, the dermatomes uh, that would be affected uh, by the back. So, so most all of the testing was actually done on the upper extremities. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry? No, I have not. But, but there, there's been an, a whole bunch of work that's been done using QST uh, in fibromyalgia patients by the group out of uh, Michigan, Ann Arbor, Michigan. Uh, Dan Claw and Dave Williams' group have, uh, you know, I mean, some of the very best, strongest work with QST in the diagnosis of fibromyalgia has been done out of that group. So I, I refer you to them. Just, just Type in Dan Claw fibromyalgia, you know, uh, QST, and you're gonna you're gonna see more than more than you even wanted to to see. Okay, yes, sir. Question on um, there are patients that I have on a very high dose, six, seven, eight hundred milligrams, thousand milligrams. Yeah. And I get them, and then I try to lower their med, and many times, not maybe forty percent of them, will have better pain control with a much lower dose of medication. Yes. So is that just because they're so yeah. high? Well, you know, when I started in the pain business, uh, it was, uh, you know, I've been in this business where I saw that opioids were terrible. Just say no, never use them, even for cancer pain, for God's sake, to the late 90s, early part of this century, where it's like everybody gets opioids in high dose, first visit, no problem, not an issue. And now the pendulum has swung all the way over to, you know, these things are the worst drugs. This is an epidemic. It's just destroying the culture of our society, you know. Pendulum. Pendulum. But, but I will tell you that when I started, you know, it's like we took, in, I'm an interdisciplinarian, cl clinically, people would come in and would stop their opioids. And we saw this, what we call the honeymoon effect. We would bring them in, we'd stop the opioids, the pain would go down, the depression would improve, They'd be more functional, and in some cases they would be pain-free after we stopped the opioid. And then whatever the pain, original pain complaint was, it would come creeping back in, you know? And then you'd have to deal with it using... Pardon me? 
No, 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 no. Well, in some cases, weeks, in some cases, months. But, but yeah, the pain would come back. And, and, but see, it, we had that opportunity, that window of opportunity or the honeymoon where we could become physical therapy, occupational therapy, cognitive behavioral psychotherapy, et cetera, and give these people other options to opioids or, or even medicines, okay? So yes, I've seen that. I've seen this honeymoon phenomena where you take people off the opioids and the pain goes away. Yes? I would say, how do you explain that if opioids aren't I'm not trying to explain it. I'm simply reporting a phenomena that I've... What? Yes. Yes. So it'll make more receptors to survive. Well, if you give less opiates, opiates you're going to have excess receptors. I don't know if that's true. That's, that's an interesting question. Well, there, there, well, what he's talking about, again, is it's not a change in the, in the receptor density so much as it is a change in the receptor sensitivity. You know, it's an upregulation and downregulation of the receptors. I, I, I'm, I, you know, yes, we're, we're going kind of around and around here, and we have, you and I have a clear distinction of definition of multiple terms. That's for sure. That's the only thing I can say right now for sure, is that you and I have a different idea about what these terms mean. Okay? Yes, ma'am. Brilliant question. I do know that um, uh, a, a lady uh, named Beatrice Setnik has done some work with this, with recreational opioid users, QST studies. I can't chapter and verse tell you exactly what she has shown. Uh, she can only do this work in Canada. She can never get by doing it in the United States. But, but I do refer you to her worth. It's S-E-T-N-I-C-K, I think. But she's done really good work with, with those populations. Um, and if I recall correctly, the answer is yes, kind of. They developed a hyperalgesic type of phenomena, um, which flies in the face of my data. Okay. Anybody else? Um, yes. That that was just just an example of another phenomenon that may explain hyperalgesia and allodynia in these populations, which is their their hormones are flat. But no 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 nobody that I know of has done the the, the studies uh, uh, where they opioids and not opioids and but see there's opioid there is known opioid suppression of of endocrine. I mean, we know this because you've got the testosterone decreases in men on opioids and, the, you know, the women that go uh, uh, post, you know, menopausal because they're taking opioids. You know, we, we know about these phenomena, so we know that the opioids themselves affect hormones.
Whether that causes an effect on sensitivity, unknown yet. Yet. But you guys are all going to run out and do this research, so you can tell me about it next year. Huh? All right, thank you. Thank you.